Welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Mark Boomer Redmond. And we are recording in two separate locations across state lines over Skype. Yeah, uh, it's questionably legal, but we're both here for it. <laughs> I had the pleasure of doing a recording with you and Brittany uh, last, what was it, last fall? It was September, yeah. It was the first time I got to record. You've been writing with us for five years, so it's kind of incredible that it took that long for us all to get in one room. Yeah, and it's. I'm glad that we're uh, doing this electronically, potentially illegally, and across state lines now. <laughs> I'm glad that we have found a way to make this work, and I'm happy to be here. We're smuggling bad takes. <laughs> uh, we're talking about Death Spa today, so we've been talking about smuggling bad taste as well. Oh, yes. It's going to be interesting because I think a lot of people cover that movie from like a comedian, like so bad it's good thing. Uh, and I genuinely love that movie. So I'm really excited about it. This is my third time watching it. And <laughs> boy, is it still an experience every time. It's maximalist filmmaking. <laughs> well, I should have done this sooner with you. Honestly, I hate recording over the internet. It's not as nice as being in the same room as someone else, but because of coronavirus, uh, quarantine, social distancing procedures, I've had to get used to it over recent months. So it seemed like a better time than ever to finally start recording with you on a regular basis. Well, I was delighted to be asked whenever you were like, I kind of have a big ask for you. I was like, oh no, I'm not ready to resume Agents of Swamp Flicks because I don't want to watch Doctor Strange right now. I'm open to it and I want to do it, but right now is not the time where I want to look at Benedict Cumberbatch's face. I don't know um, that I've thought about that movie since the theater. Like I watched Doctor Strange and then it just sort of floated out of my mind. I can kind of picture like the kaleidoscope buildings shifting around, but other than that, it's just like vapor. Yeah. It's it's a very vaporware kind of movie. <laughs> well, um, I know that you are also socially distancing from a lot of people and alone in your condo where you're living. Yeah, just me and the cat. Do you and the cat watch movies during this time, or can you even focus on something like that? We were watching <laughs> we we were watching more things at the start, and then of late, not as much, but I still. Managed to do uh, a couple of things that I'd be down to talk about. Go for it. Uh, well, the first thing that I would absolutely recommend is Disclosure on Netflix. If you follow Patty Harrison on Twitter, you've probably heard, I'm sorry, seen her tweeting about it a lot. It is about the trans experience of, or the experience of a lot of trans actors and actresses in Hollywood dating back to like even discussions of T.W. Griffith, the historical uh, racists, Birth of a Nation, and how there was actually a trans character in it. But also, it's not just the trans actors and actresses talking about their lived experience, although that is part of it, but it is basically like the celluloid closet of trans film. I was really glad to see Candace Kane getting to talk about her experience. Laverne, as always, is a delight. Uh, I highly recommend it. If you have not seen it, it is very good. Well, I, I do want to see that movie, and I was actually thinking about it during Death Spa towards the end. I was like, oh, this is the, probably the exact kind of like 
terrible representation of like it definitely comes up uh or it came to mind while i was rewatching death spa they don't mention death spa specifically i think it's a little <laughs> bit below the radar of that particular intent and that particular rhetorical space that was being created by that documentary but when we get to death spa it is worth talking about the way that it i think so kind of borrows from the um, De Palma sleaze, which is mentioned in Disclosure, and how De Palma's sleazy use of trickery as a narrative device when it comes to gender is potentially like the grandchild just of Psycho, since De Palma loves to mirror and imitate and homage Hitchcock across his career anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, even if you're already part of the discourse and have are already well aware of it, there are still things in it that I didn't know about. Like there was the complete erasure of a black man from the true narrative that makes up the core of Boys Don't Cry. That there was a friend of theirs who was also present and killed who is completely erased from that narrative oh, in the film version. When you think about Boys Don't Cry, it was such a groundbreaker at the time, and yet it itself has erasure within the text. Yeah, I didn't know that at all. Actually, I didn't know that Birth of a Nation factoid either. So, And I just watched Cellular Closet for the first time this June. So yeah, I saw I your really... post about it. Yeah, and, and there were like things I kind of disagreed about, like certain takes from it that honestly just felt like they were so 90s mindset. Like it felt like a little like we had gotten past some of the concerns in the film. Yeah. So it almost ended up being like a document of like how people were thinking at the time. And I found it really interesting as like that. Yeah. So to see a more contemporary doc on like a similar topic sounds very worthwhile. I haven't seen celluloid closet in a very long time. I remember I got it on like a Netflix DVD by mail, probably somewhere around 2008. And I had the, original book sitting on my shelf by Vito Russo, but I generally only pick it up as a reference to look something up. I've never given it a straight through read, but Mm -hmm. it is the sort of text that would be difficult to transition to a documentary format without it being much, much longer. I think that maybe as a revisitation through a miniseries, it would be more interesting, but I read in your review of it, you talked about how, it really reflected more of a desperation for representation of that time period. And I think that that's accurate, but as always, you know, I never get tired of seeing Lily Tomlin on screen either. So what are you going to (laughs) do? Well, what else have you been watching? So I don't think that it's a surprise to anybody listening. If they've ever read anything that I've written for the site, that I have been taking refuge inside of the world of Star Trek. (laughs) You know, on the Starship Enterprise, nobody is ever alone. But a few years back, I had a friend that, you know, he had kind of gone on a couple of dates after we first met, but then it wasn't just gonna, just wasn't gonna work out. And so at Christmas, I was like, oh, I got something for you. And it was just like a Star Trek magnet 
And I felt very bad that in return, I was given a copy of <laughs> Star Trek for the Voyage Home on Blu-ray because it was such a discrepancy in value between the two things that we had gotten for each other. <laughs> and I was like, oh boy, <laughs> you know, tugging on my collar. And also I didn't have anything that played that at the time and did not until about five months ago. About five months ago, for the first time, I have something that actually plays a Blu-ray. So I finally watched Star Trek for the Voyage Home on Blu-ray. It's the one that I have seen the most. It was the one that my parents had as a VHS tape when I was a kid, like years before I got into Star Trek as a series or as a concept. If I were homesick, I would remember asking my mom if I could watch the whale movie. And of course <laughs> it is the, the one about whales and by God, it holds up so well. I love it so much. It's so funny. And I highly recommend it. I know that you watched Wrath of Khan in preparation for the podcast that I did with y'all back in September. So if you wanted to skim through Star Trek Three, which is a movie where not a lot happens for a very long time, and then get to Star Trek Four, I highly recommend it. Kirk and Company in 1986 San Francisco absolutely never gets old it's a great movie isn't that one nimoy directed himself too it is it is he directed search for spock which does seem like a more amateur attempt like a lot of it visually looks great but the pacing of search for spock it takes so long for anything to happen <laughs> and then once it does start happening it happens for such a very long time and savik has been recast uh, originally played by Kirstie Alley in Wrath of Khan, and she's oh, yeah. recast and played by Robin Curtis, both in Search for Spock and at the beginning of Voyage Home. And I think Robin Curtis is actually a decent actress. I've seen her in other things and found her to be pretty talented, but she's not... Like, Kirstie Alley really understood how to play a Vulcan, and Robin Curtis's portrayal is doesn't really have a lot of nuance. And I don't think it's her fault as an actress. I think that it's just like, that's the way the character is written and that's the way the Vulcans are, but it makes her less magnetic. So even when you have Savick on screen and search for Spock, you're just kind of like, God, when are they gonna, when are they gonna put Spock's soul back in his body? I'm so tired. <laughs> I kind of imagine that's how the inside of Nimoy's brain is in general. It's just like, Things that happen very slowly. Not saying he's not intelligent. I, I guess I'm saying he's like too intelligent. Like he's like yeah. in a meditative state. Well, then they let him drink four, like you said. And then it was, it's very, um, it is very of the 80s. I mean, it is Star Trek saves the whales. I mean, it does not get more <laughs> like more hippy dippy than that. But it is so great. My favorite scene will always be McCoy and Kirk trying to rescue Chekhov from the contemporary 1986 hospital. And of course, McCoy sees a woman on dialysis. He's like, oh my God, what is this? The dark age is dialysis. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> so that's always fun. Uh, wish Dr. McCoy was here. Travel back in time to 2020. Uh, maybe oh, uh, kind of help us out with what's going on. But, you know, obviously not going to happen. But other than that, the I, I mostly just put things on in the background while I'm working. So I'm not just sitting in the darkened corner of my room, silent on the computer for hours and hours at a time. So I did watch all of the 90s Outer Limits that way. Oh, wow. Which ended up being much better than I remembered. 
when it got syndicated on Sci-Fi Channel from Showtime, they when Showtime produced it, it was kind of like one of their nighttime sexy shows. Like, it's not just about man's hubris in creating robots. Those robots might be sexy ladies, too, who take their tops off. So when they cut that for regular cable for the Sci-Fi Channel, again, back when it was SCIFI, they had to cut out all the <laughs> sexy, naughty bits. So when I was a kid and it hit syndication on sci-fi back then, I was like, none of these episodes make any sense. And now as an adult, I've seen it. I'm like, oh, it's because they had to cut out so many breasts that were narratively <laughs> important and hence why none of it made sense to me as a kid. So that was on Hulu. It's off. Uh, if you can find it somewhere else, I recommend it. And I finally decided to give Star Trek Enterprise a try. It was the last of the unseen Star Trek for me. The last couple of seasons aired while I was at boarding school. It came on a channel that we didn't really get. And, you know, the last time that I was in isolation, or at least not quarantined, but trapped in my house because of my accident and my leg injury, I finally watched Deep Space Nine because that was the other one I had not seen. Um, Enterprise is bad. Is that after Voyager? Yes, but it's a prequel, okay. so it's chronologically set a hundred years before Kirk and Company's adventures. Uh, okay. Because, you know, the Star Trek franchise looked at what uh, George Lucas was doing, and they were like, huh, prequels! I guess that's what we're <laughs> going to do, too. It seems to be going so well for Star Wars. So they are like the prequel trilogy of the Star Trek canon. Scott Bakula is our captain. And Scott Bakula is an actor who can be very charming and is very handsome, but he is not cut out for being a Star Trek lead who has to give impassioned speeches about social justice issues after encountering those issues on the planet of the week. That's not in his wheelhouse. But <laughs> I actually love T'Pol, who is his Vulcan first officer. and She has become one of my favorite characters in the whole franchise because... It is not part of her actual job experience to have to put up with the fragile white cishet male egos of her coworkers. But in practice, that is all that she does most of the time is assuage these humans' insecurities about being in space. And she does a great job. She is me. It's like that she spends her whole life having to navigate that space. <laughs> and she also will lose her mind being surrounded by it. If she misses literally one day's worth of meditation, she is a delight. And uh, she deserved better than the show that she got. Well, um, I've watched very short things recently because I have a very short attention span right now. Like, Whenever I have a couple hours to watch a movie, my go-to right now is like, what has the shortest runtime and still would qualify as a movie? That's a valid strategy. Because otherwise, like, even with that, I have to lock my phone and my laptop in a different room of the house, or I will drift and reach for them without even, like, thinking about it. Like, all of a sudden, I'll just be on Twitter uh, in the middle of something. But even with, like, a 50 to 70 minute movie, I'm, uh, I'm still guilty of that. So I've been, like, trying to... <laughs> limit how much I can fuck up. <laughs> no, I, I completely understand. Completely valid. One of them was actually, though, like, seriously, one of the best movies I've found all year. Both of these were on Canopy, uh, and they both were on PBS 
in the um, late 80s and early 90s, which was shocking to me because I learned that after the fact for both of these titles. This one's called Tongues Untied from 1989. Are you familiar with that movie? No, I'm not. It's a video art project from this guy, Marlon Riggs. He was a black gay man. He made this movie at the heights of the AIDS crisis, and it's about black gay sexual identity in America at the heights of the AIDS crisis. So it's not necessarily an easy watch. Uh, and it's mostly filmed on like these like handheld video recordings. And a lot of it is like direct to the camera interviews where people just sort of like talk directly to the audience about their life experiences. And like a lot of it's about that intersection of like, I don't feel at home in my community where I'm from because of homophobia. And then I would move out to the big city, say to like San Francisco or New York and I'm surrounded by all these white gay men um, who, yeah. you know, ostracize me because I'm black. So, like, I have no, like, real home. And the title, Tongues Untied, is kind of a reference to how they're sort of made to be silent about it. They don't really speak up much in either community. Like, they're just quiet. And they're even quiet around each other. Like, the real thesis of the movie is that, like, black men loving black men is a revolutionary act. I think that's like an exact quote. Wow, that's sad. It's a really cool topic, but the way it covers it too, even though it's like on these like handheld camcorder, like VHS, like it looks like it was produced for PBS film quality wise, but it's broken up and made surreal in this like choppy poetic editing style. And it actually is a collaboration with this um, other poet who is alive at the time his name is Essex Hemphill and it has this like kind of Gertrude Stein style repetition of like poetry readings and like layered dialogue and just like dissociating and um, subliminal phrasings and the whole thing just ends up feeling like really I want to say like transformative it's so cheaply produced and so like something you you feel like you would see on like TV <laughs> like it feels right. like a like a PBS documentary but the artistic effect they achieve with those means is like phenomenally exciting. And it's like an angry film and it's a sad film, but it's also like intensely erotic. And some of the tangents that they go on are basically like comedy sketches. Like there's a lot of humor to it as well. Um, and it just like really hit me on every level. And I was just kind of floored by it by the time it was over. Have you ever read Times Square Red, Times Square Blue? No, that's uh, a familiar phrase, but I don't, I don't know that. What is that? It's Samuel Delaney, who's mostly known oh, yeah, that's right. for his science fiction writing. Whenever he's publishing more of his social commentary works, he publishes as Samuel R. Delaney. But it is about sort of the uh, disnification of New York during and after the AIDS crisis, the way that like Giuliani's administration basically came through and wiped out everything that was theoretically the seedy underbelly that made New York the city that everybody actually wanted to be in anyway, and sort of like kind of removed the city's soul. And a lot of it is also about being Black in a queer space in that time. And said Tongues Untied was set in California. I think that those could serve as interesting companion pieces to each other with Times Square Red, Times Square Blue being set in New York might be worth checking out. I'd recommend that. As you're explaining it, I'm recognizing that I knew the title because you've referenced it before. God, I probably have. I talk about it every chance I get. I'm a one-trick pony. No, no, that sounds like something I absolutely need to read, especially since I watch so much like grimy um, 
basically like pornography that was made in New York at the time. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would definitely be interested in that. The other one I saw that also played on PBS uh, the year it was released um, was a Todd Haynes film, and it's 30 minutes long, and it's also on Canopy, and it's called Dottie Gets Spanked. <laughs> he made it between Poison and Safe, so it was like very early in his career. Okay. And it's about this little kid. He's like six years old in the 1960s, and he's obsessed with I Love Lucy type show. Uh, it's like a spoof of I Love Lucy that he watches like inches away from the television with like rapt attention. And he wins a contest to go on set and watch a episode get filmed. And his parents are already like alarmed by the fact that he's like obsessed with this woman in this like very like, you know, his dad likes to watch football and like uh, <laughs> slapstick comedies, but he's obsessed with this like basically comedy that's made for women. And then he goes on the show and watches from the audience on an episode where Dottie gets spanked by her husband. And it turns on a little light switch in this kid's head, and he starts having these, like, intensely erotic dreams that he doesn't understand about spanking. Okay. So this is, like, one of those collage-style movies from, like, early in Todd Haynes' career. Like, I really like this approach he has where, you know, you have these, like, 60s I Love Lucy-type spoofs. You have this, like, at-home drama with this kid... And his parents, who were like just concerned about him. I mean, because it's Todd Haynes, it's just kind of coded that he's like a burgeoning gay child and just doesn't know it yet. Right. And then you also have like the inside of his subconscious represented in these dreams that are like these surreal, just intense spanking messes that he can't make any sense of it. Uh, so it confuses the audience as well. So I just really found it like fascinating as like a Todd Haynes movie I'd never heard of before. But also, um, I really identified with that child <laughs> in like a way where like I remembered as a kid, like when as soon as I got a VCR for the first time, I would always like record sitcom episodes or just like random TV ephemera that happened to overlap with things that excited me on like uh -huh. an erotic level. <laughs> so the movie just like resonated with me in a way I didn't expect either. And it was just bizarre that it aired on PBS. Apparently, they just used to do that kind of thing. Wow. I think I feel like their program is a lot safer now. Yeah, there's definitely an argument for that. I don't know if this would surprise you, but the only Todd Haynes I've ever seen is actually Superstar. I have not seen any of his other, uh, any of his features or any of his other shorts. That's a blind spot of mine. Is there one that you would recommend starting with? Ooh, that's tough. I love Velvet Goldmine. I think Poison's really good as well. What did you think of Superstar? Uh, I loved it. I thought it was delightful and great. And, of course, you know, extremely upsetting. <laughs> I would think goes without saying, but if I'm just like, oh, it was a delight, and then you watch it, you might think I'm sick in the head. So I will say it is disturbing <laughs> in addition to being like a truly artistic piece of outsider cinema. It reminds me a lot of, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, I had a neighbor once in Baton Rouge. They were my neighbors for years. It was a couple and they collected dolls. Whenever I was living in New Orleans and going to grad school at UNO, they had been my neighbors before for my last year of undergraduate when I was living in Baton Rouge. And I moved basically back into the same little grouping of buildings. So they were my neighbors again. But I got this text message that was just like, what is your address now? And I came home from classes one day and I checked the mail and I had a Christmas card 
that was addressed to Boomer with no return address. It was a card that just said, hope you enjoy, signed by Brittany with a DVD inside. And what my neighbor would do is every year he would make essentially a drag comedy Britney Queers Christmas special with the dolls. What? Where there were musical numbers and comedy sketches. And I would show them to my friends. And if they were not people who were familiar with drag humor, they did not enjoy it at all. And if they were familiar (laughs) with drag humor, they were a little bit more accepting. Although our friend Alan once described it as the not scary parts of a serial killer's videotape. Because it is a little (laughs) bit like watching someone else's fever dream. Because it's not stop motion like Superstar is. But it is just like the dolls being held by their feet out of frames and and like being kind of just like moved back and forth while the dialogue is said. So that they're just kind of like vibrating to indicate which of them is speaking. And Superstar is like that. It also is like a weird fever dream of a true story. And I would recommend both Fever Dream and also Travis's Britney Queer's Christmas specials, if you can get on the mailing <laughs> list for that. I don't think we're going to top that. Uh, so we should probably just go to a death spot. Because <laughs> I want to watch that immediately and I can't access it. Welcome to the health club where you'll sweat blood. Never work without a spotter, Freddy. Wake falls on your chest and you can really get squashed. It's the place for a killer workout. So I wasn't really sure what we should talk about for this first episode, so I just sort of went with a movie of the month suggestion that we couldn't do because you had already seen it, and you said that the next time that you were on the podcast, we should talk about Death Spa. So that seemed like a good enough place to start, as any. Yeah. I happened to watch Death Spa a few years ago because I watched a movie from the director called like My Mother is a Werewolf or My Stepmother is a Werewolf. And I was like, who made this? And I saw he made three movies that year, <laughs> and one of them was Death Spa. I was like, okay, I'll watch this movie about a uh, evil health spa, this evil gymnasium, and just see if that's any better than the werewolf movie, just because the premise was so good. And I was honestly really surprised by how much I liked it. It's this kind of middle ground between like Chopping Mall and Suspiria, where <laughs> the premise is so stupid. Like It's this fully automated gym that people pay memberships to and like work on this like high tech gym equipment and it goes haywire. At first it seems like there's a slasher killer sort of stalking around in the gym, but over time it becomes clear that there's a vengeful ghost that's hacked the computer. Does system. it become clear? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> that's you. a good question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's a solid question. There is at least a supernatural angle involving a ghost and the computers, which I, um, as a fan of evil technology horror films, I was on board for. And then the Suspiria angle I'm going with is just that the movie is really overlit with these like neon washes of color gels. And the synths are so overpowering uh, that it's just like full on 80s, what do we call it earlier? Like maximalism. Yeah. <laughs> like the aesthetic effort that went into the film like is really overpowering how dumb the premise is. And then by the end, there's a Mardi Gras dance party, even though this gym is located in Los Angeles. 
And it becomes this sort of crescendo where the ghost has moved on from hacking the computers to like hacking. <laughs> I don't know how much I want to get into like the family relations in the set of the movie, but she hacks her brother's body as well and uh, takes him over and like becomes him. So there's a little bit of that uh, problematic cross-dressing trans representation that we were talking about at the top of the episode. And the rules of just logic and physics and how computers work are just completely thrown out the window just for a long series of escalating gore gags. Yeah. And the movie just ends at its most insane point. And you're just kind of left to deal with it yourself once the credits roll. I, I don't know how you found this movie, so I'm curious about that. And i also just curious about what you think about it. Well, I am a longtime viewer of Red Letter Media, which... As I have gotten older and they have gotten older, we have diverged significantly in some of our interests, which is my way of saying that um, they've gotten a little bit more conservative in later years um, as they have gotten older as commenters. So I just want to go ahead and clarify that at the top, that just because I have been (laughs) watching Red Letter Media since I was like, you know, in my early 20s doesn't mean that I'm necessarily still aligned with all of their politics or ever necessarily were aligned. But they do an ongoing series called Best of the Worst where they watch three movies and then they have a round table and then they discuss the films. And at least in the beginning, they would destroy the worst of the films in a way that was somehow related to that movie's content. They did an episode that they talked about Death Spa in back in 2014. So I guess that's the first time that I heard of it. And then when I first started listening to the How Did This Get Made podcast with June Diane Raphael and uh, some other people, June's the important part, a few years (laughs) back, they did a Death Spot episode in which June was, as she often is, quite confused and delightful. And then I finally saw a pretty terrible VHS version of it a few years back. And then... Uh, last February or March, the Alamo Draft House did it for a Terror Tuesday screening, which I know I've told you what those are, but um, if you don't have an Alamo where you live, it's basically they have certain um, special programming nights, like they'll have Terror Tuesday and Weird Wednesday, where that particular theater or city programmers person come forward and give like an introduction a little bit of a discussion of the film and then they'll screen it and it's usually like a discount screening as well and i actually was supposed to see death spa on a date i got stood up it was the horniest alamo pre-show that i have ever seen (laughs) so if you do not have an alamo or have not been to an alamo you may not be aware that they do like a 20 minute video collage before the trailers and the feature itself in which they cut together various pieces of footage that like are somehow tangentially connected to the film or sometimes that only make sense in the context of like once you've seen it so for instance when i went and saw ant-man all those years ago they had like a couple of scenes of the kids and the ant from honey i shrunk the kids as well as like footage from black and white b pictures about giant ants and various like ant adjacent ephemera for death spa they had the opening of the playgirl stretch tape which was like a home exercise video 
released by a Playgirl magazine in which various Playgirl playmates are just like, mm, these are the kind of stretches that we do. And then it's just like, here, you do, <laughs> put your finger here and then rotate your elbow like this to really loosen up. Oh, you look so great. Keep doing it while also having like some other like just like locker room slash spa slash gym erotic clips from other films. It was the horniest pre-show that I have ever seen. It was really something to behold. And makes a lot of sense with the uh, movie itself because... This is a horny movie. Yeah, it, one of the first scenes is this woman like stalked in the shower, almost in like that like first-person slasher or like Jalo point of view with the camera like sort of like leering in on her and then there's an ongoing gag where like two of the gym members want to have sex with the owner yeah as in, like a threesome they keep trying to set that up uh and there's a lot of like just tight spandex in general yeah the owner is a horn dog <laughs> i mean one of the things that merit Buttrick's character is constantly accusing him of is having been an adulterer and cheating on Catherine when she was alive, and he constantly denies it. But I'm going to be honest, I don't believe him for a single moment. He is a horn dog. I wouldn't trust him alone in the house. Yeah, he uh, obviously enjoys the attention he's getting for running this uh, very hip LA health spa, and obviously sleeps with his clients uh, because of that small fame. Because he even does it in this movie. Like He has a current live-in girlfriend who becomes blinded, <laughs> blinded. Uh, by one of the malfunctioning pieces of equipment. Yeah. <laughs> and he still se- sets up like hookups with his uh, clients at the same time. So he- he's definitely guilty of what the ghost is accusing him of. Yeah, she's right. This is a very confusing film. There are a lot of things that are seemingly being done by a computer that could not possibly be being done by a computer. Like, it's a smart gym, and yet... I don't think that the bolts that hold down the diving board could be controlled by the computer program when it's being possessed by Catherine. Yeah. It's almost like a haunted house movie too, right? Cause like the brother-in-law character who is the computer genius who like set up the smart gym even says that at some point he's like, yeah, the computer does not control the tiles in the tiles. shower room. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously it's not malfunctioning equipment. I don't know that he knew necessarily that it was his sister's ghost that was doing it the whole time, but... I don't know that he ever uh, learns that he's being possessed by Catherine. I'm not really even sure if that's... I think that that's what's happening, but even that I'm not 100% certain on. The question of how physical her presence is, I think, is interesting, because there are a lot of first-person shots of like a killer stalking people especially while they're like working out late at night alone. Yeah. That I think are like effective, even though this is like a deeply silly movie, like just the idea of being alone in a gym at night, I'm assuming, especially for a woman is actually like mildly terrifying. Like the atmosphere of that actually works in a genuine way. But once you start to like try to logic your way through whether or not, does that mean that the computer guy is actually like stalking the halls in like his sister's nightgown, but we just never see it. Or is Catherine just this like uncorporeal presence that's like sort of floating through the gym uh, and we're just like in Catherine cam and there's no actual physical body there. I, I don't have an answer to that question. Yeah. And 
uh, you know, sometimes she's doing these things physically herself, but also, I don't know, sometimes she's just lazy. And it's like, mm, instead of unscrewing some bolts, I'll, you know, do something with the computers to rip a man apart? Or is it just that the computer is supposed to be a red herring? But I don't, I honestly am not sure by the end of it. It definitely dips into like dream logic territory. Like Suspiria, like you said. Yeah. Like he has all these nightmares of her burning alive in her wheelchair because apparently she's self-emulated. Right. I don't know. I'm very forgiving when it comes to logical leaps, especially if a movie's like really over the top stylistically. I just think that like this ghost, <laughs> if, if it can invade dreams, it can invade computers and people's bodies, then there's just like no rules really. And I'm fine with that as long as the result is fun. And this one is. Yeah. How was it with the crowd uh, where they're like, I don't know what the Alamo audience is like, but I imagine there's a lot of like cheering and uh, laughter during some of the bigger gags in this. Yeah, cheering isn't really, uh, is, is explicitly forbidden, actually, because it's the draft house and they have that sort of behavior policy. But there is a lot of laughter. This was a widely beloved one. It was well attended. The only empty seat that I saw was the one uh, that was supposed to be my dates, which was fine because it was like, oh, thank God I can spread out a little. <laughs> it, it was actually a, a shockingly different experience rewatching it last week here at home by myself because the first Terror Tuesday that I went to was a movie called Pieces. Have you ever seen it? Yeah, I watched it on your recommendation, actually. Chainsaw movie. Yes. And that one was... It was such an experience to see it in a full theater with a crowd that was laughing all the way through. And then I convinced some friends of mine to watch it. It was just like the three or four of us watching it in their house, and there was not as much laughter. And I kind of had that same experience this time with Death Spa, where like there is something about comedy that is more communal, or at least certain kinds of comedy, where... Even if it's something that I find very funny, I might not laugh out loud if I'm home by myself, like the same way I would at the yeah. same joke in a group. So Death Spa was still a hilarious delight to watch at home by myself, but it was not the same as seeing it in a group uh, at a theater, which was rowdy and fun. It was as rowdy as it was allowed to get. There was much laughter and derision, and everybody seemed to be aware of how horny the pre-show was as well because there was a lot of like <laughs> a lot of like suspicious eye contact and that one had a pretty large queer audience as well i think the probably the only thing that i've ever seen that was so clearly also comprised of queer people was when they did a screening of a night in heaven for weird wednesday which is a film in which miss scarlet from clue contemplates and then consummates an affair with her student who is also an erotic dancer uh and the woman who was <laughs> giving jasmine marino who was programming that uh, particular slot was like this is a very different audience that i expected to see i did not expect for this to be an audience full of burly men but i guess you guys enjoy this film and I think that there's some overlap between A Night in Heaven and Death Spot. It was very, it was a great audience. I do love a good horned up movie, though. Like, <laughs> I think, I think that adds to the experience. I mean, even that discomfort is kind of fun when you're in a crowd and the movie's like really sexually explicit. That like communal tension where everyone's like gets kind of quiet and uncomfortable. Yeah, I think can be really fun, and it's a tension that 
kind of leads to bigger laughs when the laughs do come because you kind of need that like relief. Yeah. And I don't know. I think the movie is playing off of that same kind of like, like you were saying earlier, that Playboy Playmate style of uh, that Reagan era health craze stuff. There definitely was just like a sleazy sexuality to it at all times. Yeah. And then there was also that Linnea Quigley horror workout video that came out around this time. I don't know anything about this. Tell me. <laughs> you know, she's like a kind of minor scream queen from the 80s. And she did this like workout video that was basically a bunch of horror tropes. So she's like being accosted by a bunch of zombies while she's like poolside sunbathing. And then she leads all the zombies into like a uh, workout routine or she uh, has a slumber party with her best girlfriends and she teaches them how to be tougher in case like a killer is going to come by. And she's like playing on different like slasher, like horror movie tropes, but it is still a sexy workout video and the camera like leers on all the body parts you would expect it to uh, in the spandex. And I think this movie's doing the same thing. It's like kind of using the excuse of setting a horror movie in this place to, you know, basically wag its tongue whenever it feels like it. And I find it amusing every time. Like, it's so classically horny. Like, it's so yeah. shtick horny that it, it's kind of funny. Yeah. And there are moments where it clearly has to be going for laughs in its horniness, too. The scene that stands out to me is like when he is playfully sexually offering his blind lovers some asparagus limp asparagus, limp asparagus. <laughs> he's just like huh and she's like you know comedically has comedically large bandages over both eyes as she like tries to find the asparagus and the- that is a good gag i actually laughed out loud by myself yeah uh, it is a good one, one. But I mean, even that is like kind of playing too with just like 80s health craze stuff. Like, yeah, I'm thinking too of the juice bar blender yes. becoming like a, a weapon. Like it's kind of making fun of that yuppie Reagan era, like workout craze stuff. There were so many areas of that gym that were strictly for socialization. There was <laughs> the juice bar area. There was some kind of like, whenever the paranormal scientist the parascientist shows up sort of close to the end of the film he and the protagonist meet and then have that conversation about what he's going to be doing that evening in front of what is like a wrestling or boxing ring area that has been turned into like a lounge pit it was surrounded with like you know posts and wire and it was just like oh the socialization area full of like beanbag chairs it was distressing i guess it is a lifestyle right like they're trying to sell you this uh privilege of going to this like fully automated gym as part of it as well but like just this like healthy living among other like hard-bodied hotties yeah everyone's incredibly hot it's la they're probably all actors trying to like keep in shape for the next gig and the movie you know goes out of its way to make fun of the one or two normal looking people who are hanging around them all who are completely normal looking It's not even like they have exaggerated features. They are just completely average-looking people who are completely othered. There's even a hierarchy of beauty, apparently, among the elites at this gym. If we're going to talk about, like, the, you know, you're VHS and I'm beta. It was like, (laughs) I never show off at the gym. I only pick up, you know, the implication being that he only picks up women who are even hotter than all of the gorgeous women in this place. Right, right, right. (laughs) 
and, and I think the movie is more interested in finding those tropes than it is in like making its story clear. Yeah. So like the story is just kind of an excuse for it to like find those gags and to like sprinkle in like some over the top gore set pieces as well. And I'm totally fine with that personally. Like that's kind of the best version this could possibly be. Like if it if it actually took its story seriously, I might have lost a, l- a little bit of attention. Yeah. Did you recognize Merritt Buttrick when you were watching this? I only recognized Ken Forey. I don't know anybody else in this. So Merritt is playing David, the brother of the okay. deceased Catherine. And the reason I ask is because he was also, in the last time that we recorded, we watched Wrath of Khan. He's Kirk's son. Oh, wow. No, I did not recognize him at all. And sort of like lending to the discussion of this as a queer narrative. Merritt Buttrick himself died in 1989 of toxoplasmosis complicated by AIDS. Same year this came out. Yes. uh, He was 29 at the time. Fuck. So I feel like that's also something that like warrants discussion within the like realm of like having a gay actor play this theoretically transgender character where he is being possessed by the spirit of his sister. Maybe Uh, again, never quite clear. He could just, (laughs) the thing is there are two narratives that are at war with each other in death spot. There's, David's mind has cracked because of Catherine's death. And he is imagining that Catherine is taking over his body and he's committing these crimes in person and using his computer system to do it. That is a perfectly like logical thing to be happening as the narrative of this film. Alternatively, Catherine is a ghost who is also doing like affecting things in the physical world, like unscrewing driving boards and making shower tiles fly off the wall. But that, when it comes into contact with the computer plot, is where things start to go awry. Like, if either <laughs> one of those two had been chosen, like, I don't want to keep harping on like the illogic of the story, because again, that's not the point. But if it had gone with either one of those, this would be a film that completely makes sense as it doesn't go with either and tries to combine the two, it gets lost somewhere in that muddled middle to where the only thing that is clear is the neon. And that's okay too. I fully fell in that latter category where I was just like, Oh, it's a ghost. So nothing matters. Like the uh, rules of how she can operate is fine. She can do whatever she wants. She's a ghost. I don't know what ghost rules are, but I think the convincing thing there for me is just like when people look at, her brother they see her like there's like an illusion there yeah but that's meeting the movie more than halfway i think i don't think it ever commits to either one of those options i think my brain just chose one to try to consolidate it into something that made sense to me and it also helps to be able to say well it's supernatural so uh nothing matters logic wise yeah and earlier you made the comparison to suspiria which also like is a famous and beloved film that also does not really make a lot of sense when you get down to it. No. They both feel like dreams. I don't want to say that this movie is as impeccably beautiful as uh, Suspiria <laughs> is, but I do think it has a similar dreamlike quality. And I, I actually, and maybe this is from watching it at home and not with like a rowdy crowd, but I actually do find it like aesthetically beautiful in flashes uh, when it's not like so deeply silly that, that you can't like appreciate the framing or whatever. But I, I do think 
it doesn't have to look as good as it does. Like they put more effort into this deeply silly, convoluted, confusing idea than they had to. Yeah. And I was on board as soon as the opening gag or the lightning strikes the star body health spa sign and it just says death spa because half the lights go out. I was like, oh yeah, this is this is a great film. <laughs> I never lost that feeling. Just wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, I definitely recommend checking this out. You've seen it three times, so I assume that you're positive on it as well. Yeah. Whatever problems it has. I had a harder time paying attention to it this time than previous viewings, again, because I was home alone watching it by myself instead of with a crowd. And also, it's just harder to concentrate on things right now. I think uh, it's worth mentioning Rosalind Cash, who plays the lady detective, gives the best performance in this film. She absolutely takes no shit. And when she gets fed up, she is ready to fuck shit up at this death spa. I'd say Kirk's son, too. Believably angry and upset. Uh, which is more than you can say about most of the actors in the film, or unbelievably anything, except maybe horny. Yeah, I think that Rosalind Cash is giving exactly the right kind of performance for this film, and I think that Merritt Buttrick's performance as David might be a little too good for the for the movie. Too heated. <laughs> yeah, it's he's he is effectively portraying his character in a very dramatic movie that this film is not. But I agree, he does a great job. Well, next week, um, we are going to be talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 fiasco. Uh, Speaking of problematic queer subtext in 80s horror films, so Brittany James and I will be back talking about the homophobic and homoerotic subtext of Freddy's Revenge. And there was a documentary that came out this year called Scream Queen that covers a lot of the the behind-the-scenes... Drama? Shade? Drama, yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen Never Sleep Again. I'm curious about it, but it's four hours long. Yeah, that was one that I actually watched also right when it first came out on like a Netflix DVD by mail. And it was reaching like a 40 minute point and they were still talking about the first film. And I remember thinking like, I thought this was going to be about the whole series, but it feels like they're wrapping it up. And I kind of like dozed off to take a nap. And then I woke up and it was hours later and they were finally talking about Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And I was like, oh, this is in depth. So (laughs) there's a lot of discussion on that one about that queer subtext of Freddy's Revenge, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 as well. But looking forward to hearing y'all talk about that. Be on the lookout for the Lamal poster in his friend's bedroom lamal being the musical artist slash group that recorded the infamous never-ending story theme song there is a full-length lamal poster during the homoerotic scene in which he goes to his buddy's bedroom and the buddy is shirtless wearing camo shorts and um gets maimed by freddy so if you haven't already rewatched it be on the lookout for that and uh, hopefully we can continue to do these smaller episodes where we only talk about one movie in between, uh, as long as we can uh, put up with this Skype setup. I very much enjoyed the experience. Yeah, me too. I'm glad that we were able to finally do this. Hopefully I can properly save this file and it doesn't ruin everyone's lives by being accidentally deleted or otherwise fucked up. And we can continue to do this in the future. Well, if you're hearing this right now, everything went perfectly well. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. Later.
Death Spa, an exercise in terror.